welcome to Estranged. Uh, this is a podcast about ideology. We take a film each episode. I would say week, but we're not regular enough to be a week. Each episode, and we look at how the film sort of reflects ideological currents at play in contemporary society. So we use the film as sort of a lens to analyse society. Um, this is Helen, in case you can't differentiate me from my Mexican male co-host Adrian. But Adrian is not here today because he's just had a child. But I am so excited that we have an amazing guest today. Uh, so I will be talking with Benjamin Studebecker. Uh, say hello, Benjamin. Hi, guys. Great to be here. <laughs> no, it's really great to have you here. Um, Benjamin was actually going to be a guest at um, Peter's Wake Festival uh, in Belfast, which was sadly obviously cancelled because of the virus. Um, Benjamin is a political theorist. He is an academic at Cambridge um, and teaches at Keyes College. Is that right? Yep. And uh, no, as a an ex-Cambridge person, it's kind of it's always interesting, like having conversations and reliving, reliving that time, that those student days. I don't know, um, but yeah, no, and you were enjoying your time there. Oh, it's a blast! I, I love teaching out there. Um, you said we were talking a little bit earlier. You were talking a little bit about the British university system and the, uh, the system in the states. Um, do you? I mean, ha- you did a master's in Chicago, correct? Yeah, yeah. And how, do you, do you have a sort of feeling of the difference between the two systems? Well, the American system is broader, and it's better at producing confidence in people. The British system is narrower and deeper, and the students tend to have more knowledge but less confidence in that knowledge. So whenever an Oxbridge student meets an Ivy League student, the Oxbridge student will have probably read twice as much, but will think they only read half as much. That's very interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. I used to actually, I don't know if iTunes used still exists, but... I remember back in the day, I guess it's now shifted all onto podcasts. Maybe it's does still exist, but I used to listen to sort of uh, lectures from various universities. And I remember listening to like a, just like a layman's introduction to European history, you know, just out of interest. Um, I actually used to, it used to send me to sleep this one series of lectures that I used to listen to. And it was, yeah, it was a Yale course. I don't know if it was a freshman course in history, but it was very, yeah, it wasn't very deep. But I guess there may be more of those survey type courses um, rather than just one particular subject that you just you know get to the core of for three or four years is that fair yeah and the american approach works for people who are still figuring out which subjects right for them and the british approach works for people who know what they want and are ready to go for that yeah we kind of like we specialize quite early in the uk i mean i guess by 15 you have to choose your a levels which are three or four subjects so I, I do know a lot of people who sort of have a crisis after a number of years where it's like have I done the right thing or um yeah should I do something different we don't we don't take much time to think about what we want to do so yeah maybe maybe there's a that's a plus for the American system I think this film this is a really interesting film that Benjamin chose to talk about for me it feels very American it's a very American film um in the sort of world it's depicting um we were just talking a little bit before we pressed record and uh, i'm sure benjamin is going to have some amazing ideas about this film and um, but what what was it about captain fantastic that made you want to talk about it today 
Well, at a time when Bernie Sanders is just dropped out of the race, I can't think of a better movie than Captain Fantastic to, mm-hmm. to capture that sense of despair and the tendency we all have in periods of despair to look for ways to find meaning that don't require us to engage with a society that is endlessly disappointing. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, there's a sort of return to Eden in this film. Um, I mean, an, a utopian dimension. I'm, is, I don't know if you've um, heard, there's a guy that we're, Peter as well, like massive fan of called Todd McGowan. He's actually a psychoanalytic film theorist, but like, he's really, really good. Um, and he talks a lot about the right-wing deviation of the left. Um, and we were talking a little bit earlier about this idea of politics being kind of contradiction and conflict and a any means of sort of covering up those contradictions, one could argue is a sort of right-wing deviation and an escape into sort of individualism, return to nature. It's quite reactionary, right? Right. Despite the fact that the main character is a collectivist, is a Marxist, is in theory committed to having a society, he moves his family out into the middle of the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, real, there's a real contradiction there. I mean... Obviously, I mean, it points to me uh, to think about the contradiction of liberalism. I mean, you know, that, that a lot of, we're talking about, you know, Bernie obviously this week has dropped out and it's been kind of um, interesting, upsetting, sad, everything that's happened this year. But, uh, you know, this sort of um, liberal left, which again has these sort of explicit overtones towards collectivism and stuff like that but it's really kind of marked by a capitalistic individualistic accumulating sort of way of being I actually read a blog post that you wrote the other day talking about um different aspects of the left today um I think if I was uh, understanding you correctly sort of a um a tendency for us to be so imbued within this sort of capitalistic system that even when we turn to political movements there can be a real competitive aspect of who's the most left wing. There can be a, just a tendency, you know, especially perhaps people who are more um, middle class to to really shift that um, accumulating, striving nature into something that is supposedly left wing. Yeah, when we grow up under a liberal capitalist society that has an effect on how we understand ourselves and how we understand other people and attempts to critique this tend to incorporate some of those core premises and core ontologies. Uh, It's very hard to get outside of liberalism when you're born into it. And liberalism is kind of the dominant theory which shapes all of modernity. Most of the stuff that we think of as a critique of liberalism emerges from liberalism and is in part a reaction to liberalism incorporating some of its core content. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, um, it is, it is just so interesting. The, uh, yeah, the way that, I mean, I guess this is why we have this podcast because it is so difficult to see the sort of cloud of ideology that is just there and liberalism sort of, in a way convinces us that we're free. And capitalism is very good at hiding where the antagonisms lie, you know, in sort of material products that we buy. It's very good at disguising the exploitation and all of the real, yeah, the issues that need to be covered over for us to kind of have blinkers on and continue to go to keep going under this kind of like very 
yeah, a toxic system and it is sort of a given. Um, and obviously, since the fall of communism, it's very hard to see what the alternative is. Um, so yeah, this is, I guess this is the point of the podcast for us to kind of look at films, not for their artistic merits or anything like that, but see where the form points to sort of these ideological deadlocks within society. Um, I thought it was really interesting, just the, the name of the film, Captain Fantastic. Obviously, you have the word captain, which is like a very militaristic word. Um, and the way he, he like raises his children is very, you know, militaristic, self-discipline, sort of like, um, yeah, like a, 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 a taking charge of one's self-responsibility for oneself, self-discipline. And then fantastic, which is sort of this idealistic side, which is almost like the opposite of the word captain. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, there's this wonderful tension between on the one hand because he is ostensibly left-wing there is a sympathy to him and a sympathy to what he is trying to accomplish and then yet because he's existing in this in this structure that is so inhospitable to his values he has had to adopt a quite authoritarian family model to protect those ideal values and a lot of attempts to do socialism or to do Marxism have had that tension in them. When you're trying to do an ideal in a situation which is not altogether suited to that ideal, the tension between those two things becomes really paramount. Uh, and I also find uh, that there's, there's a scene in that movie that I really love where they're driving the bus. Uh, uh, Captain Fantastic is with his kids and they're, they're driving along in a bus and they get stopped by the cops, I think, because mm -hmm. a, a taillight is out or something. And, and the, you know, the cops get on board the bus and the, the police are very disturbed by by the whole thing. But then almost as if on cue, the kids begin to sing a Christian song to the policeman. Mm -hmm. And because they're singing a Christian song, the policeman decides well it's no big deal it's it, they're just they're just religious people and he leaves them be a little mm -hmm. weirded out but he leaves them be and this kind of authoritarian family model is very compelling to us uh, if it's something if it's in the service of ideals that we ostensibly believe in but it's yeah. very not compelling whenever it's not that absolutely right i mean i this is something that we talk about a lot this Obviously, there's a, this notion of quote unquote patriarchy, which is a really interesting talking point in terms of things like feminism and this question of what it really means. And there's a sort of a dialectic there of both, especially if we look at somewhere like Me Too, of what is this patriarchy? We desire both some kind of instantiation of a rule of law to say, like, stop having sex with everybody. You know, there's, a, there's sort of like an authority demand there and also a throwing off of authority. Um, yeah, it's really hard. And, you know, a lot of these contradictions kind of do bubble up in a lot of these movements. That scene I just think is so fantastic. I kind of, um, what stuck out to me in it was their sort of immediate repulsion and disgust of a police officer as if this was some like disgusting zoological creature and they had this sort of superiority to this man and, oh my gosh, we're all going to get shot. And obviously, you know, there's an element of, well, yes, America, the police force, etc. But, you know, there isn't, you know, he's just this really nice person. <laughs> he kind of comes onto the bus and is just a guy. Um, yeah, and they sort of don't really know how to, they've sort of elevated themselves so far out of uh, society that they can't really 
a sort of um, almost autistic in their ability to interact with people. Um, yeah, they do come across as very, very weird. Um, what do you think? Something else that stuck, stood out for me was the, the fact that they all have names that nobody else in the world has. Um, you know, and for me, I do say this quite a lot, for me, the sort of icon of neoliberalism is the unicorn. The unicorn is just so, is completely everywhere in, in 2020. You know, every product has a unicorn on it. We all want to be the unicorn, the special one. But actually living in community is sort of, and also being a grown-up is sort of accepted that you're not really a unicorn, you know, you are you are one of many, you know, Bernie's uh, not me, us. Um, and obviously this idea of um, the self and the individual and how one is completely particular with all one's particularities has been a real talking point over the last few years. I mean, how do you think that, um, do you have anything to say about that and how that uh, fits into sort of the neoliberal model. Yeah, yeah. I think that neoliberalism has kind of two different strategies for legitimating itself. The first is to draw on the liberal values, freedom, equality, representation, democracy. It, it gives you these things, and these things allow you to be fully you. When it's pushed, it moves away from that into a kind of group liberalism in which it says, hey, I know that things are stressful right now, but look, I reflect your essence, the group or the culture or the values that you identify with. I reflect those back at you, and therefore you find self-expression within me. It becomes mm -hmm. a kind of mirror, mirroring signal to people when they're under duress. And in both of those, we, we often think of the kind of group liberalism as not individualist in the same way. But it really is because it is reflecting the individual's thick cultural content in a way which flatters the individual and says that society is the expression of the individual. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think this is, I've sort of found this move really fascinating um, over the last several years of this um, you know, liberal sort of phenomenon of as a X, Y, Z, you know, accumulate all these different groups to become an, a particular. So for me, as a white, cis, able-bodied, you know, it's, you, 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 you sort of jigsaw a particular out of these wider movements that of course can't really capture the individual and therefore you require all of these fragmentations of these sort of depicted groups so i think you know the the 73 genders is a obviously an example of that and it will now it's obviously the plus the plus is actually kind of clever because i guess it captures the fact that yes this talking point isn't ever going to capture the reality and we you know we are all individuals but we are also in a community and uh yes yeah, so it's, it's kind of a it's a hard it's a hard square to circle but i guess this is the real challenge of leftist politics it's like how do we how do we live into that contradiction instead of just escaping the difficulty of trying to work out how we are all individuals together in a community it's kind of difficult <laughs> yeah i think really it's it's the main problem that animated a lot of 19th century political thought is how do we reconcile the individual to the collective? These things seem to have been split apart. How do we get them back together? And lots of, lots of different strategies were used. And in, in the Anglosphere case, I think 
for the most part, it was just to say it's fine. Individualism is fine. There's nothing really wrong with it. And mm-hmm. the, the Germans had an interesting way of doing it insofar as they conceptualized freedom as something which the state had to give you. The state had to provide you with the conditions under which you could cultivate your own values and cultivate your own beliefs. But of course, for that to work, your values and beliefs had to be amenable to the German state and had to mm-hmm. reinforce the German state ability, uh, the German state's ability to do that. And that tends to swing in one of two directions. Either the German state cultivates uh, values that are overly pluralist to the point where the people lose their commitment to the German state and the German state collapses, or it Mm -hmm. swings in the opposite direction and you get a very dogmatic culture comp that imposes a particular value set on everybody. And Mm -hmm. that attempt by the German theorists to reconcile the individual with the community, it never really came off because it was always swinging too much in one direction or the other. And in a similar kind of way, anarchism in in the Anglosphere, libertarianism in the Anglosphere, often in the name of collectivity, um, still ends up further fetishizing the individual. In in Anglosphere political thought, we really struggle to -hmm. even begin to get outside of that. You know, it's interesting. I think it was just so fascinating that the the TV show Chernobyl resonated so much with people this year. And I kind of feel like it was a, there's something about the Russian way of doing things that is so alien to us in Northern Europe and America that people could sacrifice themselves. You know, if, if, you know, Chernobyl is an accident that could have only happened in Soviet Russia, but it also could only have resolved that in Soviet Russia. You know, I just think, like, who would you, those, I don't know if you saw it, but the, the divers who sort of sacrificed themselves to, to go in and plug the, the big leaks at the, the center when the explosion first happened. Like, you'd have, who, who would do it in, in America or the UK? Um, you know, we do have a sort of um, a tendency to, and I think this is why this film, I mean, it's very moving, it's very entertaining, you know, it's very heartwarming. But, and and I think British and American audiences wouldn't really see the problem with it because we sort of see um, this individual anarchistic libertarian mode as something that should be praised, as something positive. Yeah, at least when when the anarchism is connected to a value set that appeals to us. Mm-hmm. As soon as That's it becomes true. connected to something else, then we turn on it. And of mm-hmm. course, because this is all about the hyper satisfaction of the individual in these anarchist mm-hmm. movements, you get endless fragmentation, endless disagreement over what the right set of values are for which you can construct this uh, mm-hmm. this this uh, collectivity. And so that that prevents any particular model from really catching on and that's in part why to make Captain Fantastic sympathetic, it has to be a vague kind of leftism. You never get a particular, very strong notion of where actually within left-wing thought Captain Fantastic is. I mean, there's Noam Chomsky Day. They celebrate Noam Chomsky's birthday. Mm -hmm. But Noam Chomsky, lots of people like him. He doesn't pigeonhole himself in any particular box. And because of this, anybody who has kind of vague left-wing sympathies can project their values onto Captain Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and of course, yeah, there's an immediate sense of worthiness when it comes to, um, 
yeah, left-wing thinkers. And as you were, you were saying earlier before we press record, what would happen if this guy's values, if exactly the same mode of being, exactly the same extraction from society, but it had been clouded in, for example, as you said, Christian ideology? Yeah, yeah. And I think that to a large degree, the left today has got a lot of people in it who used to be in evangelical Christian communities. Absolutely right. There's, yeah. There has been a lot of that kind of shifting. Um, it's interesting. So uh, Peter's work um, in the America, I mean, it's, it sort of has different wings to it, but part of his early work was helping people um, leave evangelical churches. Um, and so it's sort of helping people to sort of like, he uses actually mostly psychoanalysis marks, um, things like that, but psychoanalysis mostly, but it's, it's breaking down sort of toxic belief structures. Um, but a lot of people who left the church and became became sort of more hippie, let's say, have just fallen into um, very blatant, very extreme liberal ideology. And it is like the, the hippie and the fascist, you know, <laughs> two sides. I'm not saying that these people are fascists, but, you know, it, I think there is there is a nice slide between one to the other, let's just say. Um, yeah. And people who follow Peter's work might have identified that themselves, seen that in, in, in as like a, as, as an example that that happens quite a lot. Um, and you know, obviously, America is a very religious country. I mean, maybe less so now than 30, 40 years ago. But yeah, the, 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 there is a there is a liberal and uh, religious quality to um, cultural norms under our current neoliberal system um yeah sorry and i think it's very it's very seductive because anarchism and and kind of extreme versions of liberalism are so overtly opposed to authority that someone who is leaving a religious movement that they found overly authoritarian overly constraining can't imagine how this movement which is overtly and explicitly committed to the freedom of the individual could nonetheless produce precisely the same kinds of dynamics. And so because the overt ideology of anarchism is so hostile to power structure, it becomes very easy to create informal, unrecognized power structures. And a lot of the kids in Captain Fantastic gradually over the course of the movie begin to chafe against just how domineering the father Mm -hmm. is. Absolutely, absolutely. this is this is, I guess, a more a psychoanalytic thing, but it is something that comes up in in the film and in liberalism. So the scene where one of the daughters is reading Lolita and the conversation leads to um, sex and this very biological textbook description of female anatomy and what sex is. And this is something that, that liberalism does. It and I see some of my hippie friends who have children talk to their children about sex in this way without understanding the complete trauma of it. So there's sort of a, a rising to the, as if as if just by overcoming repression, this is a very 1968 thing, as if by overcoming repression, you can overcome capitalism. But that's not really how it works um, because there are always repressions everywhere and we sort of need repressions in terms of like the way our subjectivity is is uh, is formed and there's something very horrifying about your dad talking to you about sex <laughs> it's like it's not it's not it's not a neutral thing 
Um, but yeah, there is something under liberalism where um, I don't know how much you you uh, talk about 68 in your work. But this is something we talk about a lot, the sort of fallacy of overcoming the boundary of sexual repression when all it did was it just allowed for capitalism to emerge in a different area that yeah. it hadn't and been And to marketize before. all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that part of part of why 68 happens in this way is that Entering into the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, you have this period uh, of mid-century leveling, of Keynesianism, of Bretton Woods, in which it seems like from a political economy standpoint, capitalism is more stable than it previously was in mm -hmm. the 10s and the 20s. And because of this, instead of looking for a political economy path to some kind of socialism, a lot of Marxist thought during this period starts looking at ideology and culture. And that that is all very valuable and an important work but it's easy to take some of that stuff if you're a kind of naive radical in mm -hmm. a liberal direction and think that if you are subverting cultural norms breaking cultural taboos that that in and of itself is a means of overcoming liberal ideology uh, and very often it's just substituting one set of taboos for another. Very often the new set of taboos is more market oriented, more market heavy, more exploitative and alienating than the previous set. Uh, and I think that we, we've seen this a lot with how a lot of the later theorists of that period, like Habermas, for instance, have been mm -hmm. appropriated very thoroughly by liberals to the point where uh, their work is no longer meaningfully anti-capitalist in the way that it's used by their followers. Absolutely right. I mean, this is where I guess I would have a break with Chomsky. I mean, I'm educated in the French tradition, so I obviously have like a, a you know, a, a sympathy for it. And I'm like very interested in Lacan. But interestingly, like, well, there has in film theory, there has been a misappropriation of Lacan, but it's been like a total misreading. And if you actually read it, probably it's like says the opposite. But um, yeah, no. So when I hear things like, you know, the Jordan Petersons of the world saying, you know, uh, cultural Marxism, da, da, da. But the, the fact is that a lot of it, if you read it, you know, in, in the original, it is anti-capitalist. But the way it's been uh, simplified and marketized and liberalized, it has just been become, become a weapon of the market. And it's very, very tragic. I mean, you know, I say this quite a lot, but contemporary feminism is, seems to be nothing but a bourgeois power grab when before potentially the more universalistic um intentions you know i guess it, you know it's, it's moving from the universal to the individual um obviously you know the question of the universal what is the universal but anything that can be particularized or is used to emphasize particularism basically that's just a weapon of the market what becomes that yeah as as there's been this mcgovernizing of left-wing thought and of left left-wing stuff more broadly and, and when i say mcgovernizing i mean that Basically, the working class, which used to play a dominant role in driving left-wing movements, has been increasingly supplanted and replaced by a professional class of largely university-educated um, people. And, and as a result, all of these left-wing ideas have been bent in ways which service the material interests and uh, cultural predilections of that professional class. 
and this has had a major distorting effect. And what it has done is it has kind of undone some of the lessons that we learned from Marxism in the left. Uh, Marxism, which has lots of incompletenesses, but which did overcome one really serious problem that we had at the time that Marx came along, which was that so much left-wing thought was thoroughgoingly utopian, thoroughgoingly mm -hmm. moralizing, and just mm -hmm. thought you could just talk rich people into out of uh, commitment to virtue, giving up their power. All you had to do was go out into the woods and form some kind of ideal utopian community, have it be a beacon on a hill, and then everyone would go, oh my God, there's a better way to live. Let's all, all, mm -hmm. all change. Uh, that utopian socialism of the early 19th century was never going to go anywhere. And yeah. Marx really helped us to see that there are actual interests at stake, structural interests, that this isn't just a moral argument that you can win uh, by mm -hmm. persuading individuals one at a time, that the change has to come out of structure and not just out of persuasion. Uh, all of that is now being reversed as all of this radical thought is vulgarized and uh, reduced by uh, very often people who, who, who don't get enough of it. There's a, a mm -hmm. danger in, especially in the American universities, where you show up and you're studying some radical political theory and they start you off with, with the Frankfurt School and they start you off with the critical stuff before you know what it's critiquing, before you've read mm -hmm. Marx, before you've mm -hmm. read any of the stuff that it's building off of. And so if you have been baked in liberalism since you're a small child and you get this critical theory divorced from its context and its history, there's a, a strong tendency to read it through liberalism. We tend to read stuff through what we've been exposed to. That's why when students start reading political theory, they're so presentist. They want to make everything fit into the terms of the contemporary debate. And they're not mm -hmm. able to bend terms and see how different people in, in different time periods might have used language. If you throw someone into the deep end before giving them the tools to understand how language can be played with, they're going to just interpret whatever you give them through what they've been exposed to. And that results in neoliberal bastardizations of these radical theorists. Absolutely right. I mean, I can't agree strongly enough. Um, interestingly, France, where you know, a lot of this stuff is said to come, or obviously a lot of it does come from France, is much more socialistic than America, obviously much less individualistic. And you do not get, I mean, obviously you get flavors of cultural movements coming from America, but it is not appropriated in the same way. You do not have the same uh, bastardization. And because, I mean, people see the world, see community, see government and living in their country as very, very different from how Americans see it, and even from the UK. And so um, some of my friends who are French academics, and a friend, a couple who are French academics in America, really shocked by how <laughs> differently it's interpreted in America. And I mean, I also, I mean, I've seen it in the UK as well. I'm not sure what you, I'm, I'm guessing Cambridge is, you know, not, not guilty of this so much in, in terms of yeah, liberalization or kind of a weaponization and a conveniently using, I see this a lot in film studies, conveniently using um, terms that don't actually mean what the term has been weaponized for um, to justify a liberal argument. Um, and it's quite frustrating. 
Yeah, liberalism really relies on terms that are very vague and amorphous mm -hmm. and therefore yeah. can be constantly redefined so that the power structure can say it's giving you them. A word like freedom, mm -hmm. a word like equality, you can mm -hmm. play with this all over the place. You can turn it into so many different things. And mm -hmm. that's, that's why Marx was so hostile to using that kind of amorphous value language, yeah. because yeah. it makes it so easy to pervert what you're doing. And you hardly see any reference to the concept of equality in Marx's work because mm -hmm. it is such an easy word to distort. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, Mar it is It is astonishing. I mean, obviously the Jordan-Peterson-Gizek debate where Peterson seemed only to have read the Communist Manifesto. It's like, read Capital. Um, but, you know, it is, it's, it's a term that I see, obviously I'm a filmmaker and I, you know, was at university within a sort of language and film department and uh, see this word gaze used a lot um, to, and it's sort of this, because it was originally a French word, then it was taken by somebody who hadn't really read Lacan in this pivotal essay in film studies. And it's a word that is used basically as this, the male gaze, but the word gaze, which is le regard in French, means like it's to do with the lacking position of subjectivity. So it's nothing to do with power, it's to do with lack. It's to do with how um, subjectivity and the ego is generated from the separation with the mother, therefore a sort of absolute lack of power. <laughs> so it's just amazing. It's always amazing to me that I'm just like, well, how, what, what, what? And I know a lot of Lacanians get super pissed about it, but anyway, uh, there you go. Um, but, you know, it is, it is the sort of, this liberalism has a sort of a floating nature to it, that you can be anything you want to be that one word can be anything that you want it to be eventually. Um, yeah, and I guess, you know, there's the sort of, obviously referring back to the film, um, the libertarian mode of living, the sort of a libertarianization of, of everything under, under, under capitalism. What do you think about um, pivoting this to, I mean, we don't have to talk about it too much if it's too unpleasant. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously I've thought a lot about Bernie 2016 and Bernie 2020. Do you have any comments about the difference there or if there was any difference and uh, what Bernie looked like in this upcoming election or this current election? Yeah, I think there were a lot of hop-ons. There were a, mm -hmm. a lot of people in the kind of university professional class scene who uh, maybe initially supported the Bernie campaign in 2016 but weren't heavily involved with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and in some cases, people who didn't even support it in 2016, who had been neutral or who had even been for Clinton, yeah. who then hopped on to it. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is an example because she didn't have a horse in 2016. She mm -hmm. was still trying to decide where she was at at that time. Uh, a lot of these people kind of hopped on and they... Their, their aim was to push the Sanders campaign to the left. They said, I'm you know, to the left of Bernie, and I want to push Bernie to the left. And what they meant by that was that they wanted Bernie to be more McGovernite in the sense mm -hmm. that they wanted him to speak more radically about foreign policy and about identity social issues. Yeah, which, I mean, it's just ironic, the conversation we've just been having about the meaning of words to the left. I mean, you can literally say that. And it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but yeah, no, absolutely. There's a sort of, yeah, for, for me, identity questions aren't left-wing questions, but anyway. Um, yeah, yeah I, it's interesting as well that uh, I think, I mean, just, just anecdotally, 
when Brexit happened in 2016, um, I was in the States uh, with Peter and we were watching um, the, you know, the results come in. And one of the first uh, places to declare their, to vote was this place, Sunderland, which is a very, um, it's a sort of formal industrial, traditionally working class area in the northeast of England. I used to live up near there as a child, so I kind of knew it well. And as soon as that vote came in for Brexit, it was like, well, Brexit's going to happen. And I think there is a, it's clear if you sort of know the dynamics of the country, <laughs> that what uh, upper middle class people choose to do in an election is not reflective of actual working people. And working people are much more numerous in society than um, educated, quote unquote, upper middle class people. But I, I do sort of feel, I mean, I didn't follow this, you'd know a lot more about it than me, that in this election, more of the liberal upper middle classes potentially were Bernie supporters and that perhaps he lost his footing with uh, more sort of blue collar areas. Is that fair? Well, before this all got so depressing that I couldn't stand to do this anymore, <laughs> in the first few states, I, I tracked how Bernie did in the counties, and mm -hmm. I organized the counties between urban counties, college town, and uh, rural counties. And what you, would, what you found is that Bernie did just as well in college towns as before, except in places where Elizabeth Warren did well. Mm -hmm. In cities, he tended to do a bit better than previously, uh, and in rural areas, much worse. Uh, Pete Buttigieg won more rural counties in Iowa than Hillary Clinton did. Uh, in, uh, in, in New Hampshire, the uh, college towns and, and cities in New Hampshire moved up in terms of where he got the highest vote percentage. He was only getting really, really great voter percent, uh, percentages in rural counties in New Hampshire when those counties bordered Vermont. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, was, was immediately worrying. After Nevada happened, I thought, well, hey, maybe, maybe they can still get there even, even without. But as we saw in South Carolina and beyond, my initial worries were unfortunately founded. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and... A big part of what has happened over the last couple of years is that the right has managed to frame this project around the squad and to say that mm -hmm. Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and so on are what this project is. Those yeah. figures are polarizing along cultural and social issue lines, along foreign policy lines, in all the ways that the kind of 60s, 70s McGovernite left was polarizing. Mm -hmm. And in reattaching the Sanders movement to those figures, if you look at Ocasio-Cortez's national favorability numbers, they have always been about 20 points lower than Sanders, at least mm -hmm. last, I, last I remember checking. Uh, so it's, it's really encumbered the movement yeah. quite, quite badly. And it's... It's hard to imagine really coming back from this because in, in the United States in particular, we've had this problem now since the late 60s where every time we try to do anything, any time we try to marshal any energy, it's immediately captured by these McGovernites. Mm -hmm. Immediately. 
Uh, and they're better organized than workers at this point because of the level of deunionization, because of the lack of civil yeah. society organizations, networks of people who know each other through universities uh, are, are better organized at this point than trade unions. And a lot of the trade unions that are left uh, to stay relevant in national politics have had to get embedded in the Democratic Party establishment. Mm -hmm. It is extremely depressing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it is, it is, um, it is terrible. And obviously one, since the breakdown of, I mean, since I guess financialization, etc., cetera, uh, the breakdown of actual, yeah, trade unions and things like that, and the sort of absolute putting, um, just accepting the capitalist system as a given, um, the collapse of communism, no alternative. Um, yeah, I mean, how, how do you how do you challenge that? I had a thought that um, I was about to get to, but I lost it lost it in my in my train of thought. Um, well, yeah, if you if you think of it, uh, feel free to to yeah, think me. of it. Uh, <laughs> okay, but yeah. I, I was I was just thinking about uh, France Fanon mm -hmm. and the the way in which he gets misread. So we have a, a poll one first year topic on mm -hmm. Fanon. And students always want to read Fanon as saying that race is the fundamental ontology, even though that's yeah. not at all what he says. They always want to read him that way. Uh, and they always miss the Marxism that's in the book. Yeah. In part because they, at the time that they read that book, they haven't done any Marxism yet. So it's inevitable mm -hmm. that they will misread him in that way. And yeah. so it becomes my job in supervising them to prevent that from happening or to mm. intercede when it does. Uh, the thing that I love about Fanon is that his whole, whole argument is about why people like him should not lead the revolutionary movement. <laughs> people who speak French, who have been educated uh, in France, uh, they're the people, he says, who should not lead the revolutionary movement because they inevitably incorporate the values of liberalism. Mm -hmm. And when you have liberal values, cultural values, it becomes very hard to support economic structures that won't reproduce those values. Yeah. And very That's often true. when someone who's reasonably economically comfortable is faced with a choice between changing the economic system in a way which could be disruptive to their economic well-being and preserving a set of cultural values that make them feel good aesthetically, they mm -hmm. go for what is aesthetically gratifying over mm -hmm. an economic proposal that could be disruptive to their lives. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you talk about the sort of aestheticism, the lack of grounding in actual like structural material questions and this pure floating aestheticism is, is very, very, it's very liberal to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very, always very more important to them when push comes to shove. And, and it's, mm -hmm. it's structurally inevitable. It's not, it's not a, to pick on members of the professional class individually or to pick mm -hmm. on them morally. It's, yeah. it's what happens when you are functionally the house slave in this system where you are doing better than everybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a certain level of comfort and something could go horribly wrong for you if it gets disrupted. You have more risk in supporting mm -hmm. disruption. And 
the system finds ways to flatter you constantly. W one of the things that we've done kind of as the post-war era has wound down is that we've gradually chipped away at the set of people that we try to legitimate this system to. If you think back to the ancient world or even, you know, the world of just 400 years ago, there was no effort to legitimate the political system to the peasants, to the commoners. No effort whatsoever because they were deemed to be completely non-threatening to it. And if they're not a threat to it, then there's no reason even to try to make an argument to them. Yeah. Uh, and as workers have become not even a threat to the system, increasingly the system doesn't even make an argument to them and speaks exclusively to the professionals who are still capable of causing some level of trouble. That's absolutely, yeah, no, I think that's spot on with what's, what's happened over the last 30, 40 years and the talking points, which are aesthetically radical, but do not speak at all to the values of people who are most afflicted by capitalism. I mean, interestingly, I think there's something that the film does get right, which is the fact that these people, obviously sort of an upper middle class, you see the family home of the wife who has committed suicide. And I think this is something that Marx gets at and also, you know, why it's important to talk structurally. And even, I mean, it's very difficult, as, as you've said already, we are all imbued with these sort of liberal ideology. And so we can get very moralizing of one another. But actually, something that Marx, I think, would agree with is even the winners lose in capitalism. So, you know, and, and the system is, is not of benefit to anybody. I mean, any sort of extreme wealth that I've witnessed comes with an extreme amount of melancholy. You know, there's, you, you cannot control the reality you live in despite huge amounts of money. Obviously, there's material questions and the sort of metaphysical questions, but accumulating wealth does not solve any of the metaphysical questions. And this family who, you know, they come from a very wealthy background, they're completely dissatisfied and they need to escape. And then they escape and she still is depressed, you know, even the winners lose. And as you said, you know, you might be a house slave, but you're still a slave to capital. Obviously, you know, then you have to sort of um, temper that with, of course, there are people who suffer more under the system. But um, yeah, we, we do have a system that that is more beneficial to some, but even the winners do lose. Yeah, yeah, two thoughts about that. First, at the very end of the movie, there's a decision by Captain Fantastic to move his family into a farmhouse. Mm -hmm. Now, earlier in the movie, they have to steal food because he has no money. Yeah. So how did they get the money for the farmhouse? Well, clearly his wife's parents gave them that money so they could buy that farmhouse. Yeah. That's clearly yeah. what happened, but that doesn't get stated. Uh, and invariably, there is... to, to Part of the trouble is that to have the resources necessary to indulge in critique. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, critique is not something that pays well, or at least it shouldn't pay well. And if it starts to pay well, then it is usually not critique. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to do critique, you have to have a certain amount of money so that you can indulge in uneconomical activity. Mm -hmm. That tends to shape the form that the critique takes. Absolutely right, yeah. Yeah. And, yes, uh, very, very difficult. <laughs> yeah, and I, I also wanted to, to make the, the second point that um, if you look even at the really rich people, even at the billionaires and the oligarchs who run this mm -hmm. system, at this point, these people are dominated by the same market imperatives that their Absolutely. own workers are dominated by. If you look at someone like an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos, these people mm -hmm. live lives where they're constantly on a treadmill trying to make more money, living in the service of their investors. And they, they, one of the really amazingly 
uh, amazing things that capitalism has done is subject even the ruling class to the ideology such that even the ruling class lives in service of it. If you go back to the ancient world, the medieval world, there was this notion that the purpose of wealth was to free up your time so that you could cultivate real values. And it was, oh, a, a, you know, of course, you, the only way to get free time in a world with primitive technology is to enslave people or to have serfs or whatever. That's the rough underbelly of the whole thing. But mm-hmm. they justify it on the basis that, well, because we have all of this time, we produce culture, we produce civilization, we produce science, we produce philosophy. And in the ancient world in particular, that argument is just very, very straightforwardly made. Aristotle goes, yeah, slavery is at the root of leisure. You need slavery to get leisure. You need leisure to become a virtuous person. And therefore, being a good person, being a free person, it all requires having slaves. You need a property requirement to vote in in most of human history because they very straightforwardly believe you need someone to free up your time so that you can think about the political. They just make that argument very straightforwardly. At this point, the ruling class has forgotten those arguments and no longer understands what to do with money when it has money. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Noblesse oblige. It doesn't really exist anymore. But I mean, yeah, no, it's... um. Even the notion of, obviously, we, there's a, a Patreon, you had it for what's left, is something that has sort of risen up recently. But yeah, where, where is this notion of sort of pure waste? So people who have wealth, giving it to artists to waste time. <laughs> well, you know, this capital, the, the trouble is with capitalism, though, is, you know, and we see this with the coronavirus. Like, we spread, it has to spread into every, you know, there has to be borders that are overcome. There has to be expansion, constant expansion. And as, as Benjamin just said, you know, previous classes who were, outside of the realm of capital now have to adhere to the same rules. Jeff Bezos is a zombie slave to capitalism, so is Elon Musk, in a way that potentially if he was an aristocrat 2,000 years ago, he wouldn't be. Um, But it leaves no contingency. So coronavirus, you know, because everything, everything is is capitalised upon. Within two weeks, there's nothing. You know, we, we we have sort of reached a point where we're with squeezing at the very like borders of existence with how far capitalism can go. What can we next marketize? What can we next capitalize on? Obviously recently there's been a sort of inner world is something that's been capitalized upon, um, you know, sort of telling your truth, that kind of thing. But yeah, it's, I mean, I, I don't know. Coronavirus is obviously something that is really exposing the system. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I, I think that since the thirties, what we kind of decided we were going to do is, that, you know, the thing that really drove revolutionary behavior was precarity, because if you felt like you didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow, then you didn't have much to lose. And so the solution to precarity was full employment. Uh, we have now decided to not do full employment. We've made a decision not to do it. If we're not going to do full employment, we have to substitute that with something else mm-hmm. to take care of precarity. And some governments have been quicker to figure that out and to slap a lot of, of uh, stimulus Band-Aid on this than others. Uh, I, I kind of suspect that when push comes to shove, if, if it gets hairy, governments will do enough stimulus to pacify enough people to get through it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I worry about, if you go back to 2008 when they did all of that stimulus in the 08 to 10 period, when everyone was going, oh, Keynes is back, the left is back. 
all of that stimulus became the excuse for the next decade of austerity. We spent all this money and now we have to balance the books. And so the fact that they're spending even more this time makes me think that when this does end, uh, if if capitalism does survive this, and I think it probably will, Mm -hmm. they're going to do a whole nother round of austerity on the basis of this. And so it's not just that people are getting hit with unemployment right now and with the precarity that that causes. Insofar as they're protected from that precarity in the short term, that will become the basis for robbing them of their protection from precarity in the long term by further dissolving safety nets and public services. Yeah, yeah, it is. uh... (laughs) I mean, do you do you put it down to just the belief? I mean, obviously, that the the the, 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 the cliche that there's no alternative. Do you think that? What do you think it would take for um, something else, another option? I think the engine of the whole thing at this point is the trade system. Is the fact yeah. that. Uh, jobs and capital can move from country to country easily. That puts the countries in a competition with each other to attract jobs and capital. And that forces them to lower taxes, cut public services, deregulate, deunionize, push down wages, the global race to the bottom. All Mm -hmm. of that comes out of the fact that capital and jobs move easily from place to place. And there are, I, I think there are two ways in which one would would bring an end to that. One would be to somehow politically govern that whole global system by constructing yeah. some kind of global polity which sits above it. The mm-hmm. other would be for something to come along which breaks the trade links and throws us back into territorial states. Mm-hmm. Coronavirus has not yet broken the trade links. They have closed mm-hmm. borders to migration. They have not closed borders to goods. It would have to be one of those two things, I think. And, and yeah. It seems very politically difficult to get people to support larger polities. Mm-hmm. And all of the scenarios in which you rip up the trade links and go back to territorial states, because governments know that if they do that voluntarily, the immediate increase in the cost of goods will politically annihilate them and make them mm-hmm. unelectable. Uh, it, it isn't likely to happen through a voluntary process and instead is most likely to happen as a result of some catastrophe. Climate change was the go-to for mm-hmm. for me, uh, at least up until this point. And maybe maybe it'll be a plague or something that's much more intense than this uh, yeah. in the future. But that's that seems to me to be the only the only way out at this stage. Uh, in part because a lot of people who think that automation would drive the transformation have to reckon with the fact that this. This freedom of jobs to move from country to country allows firms to reduce their labor costs by relocating rather than investing in automation technology. It is. I mean, it's, it's interesting because um, I, I, I do not know very much at all about actual, obviously, I, I read economics out of interest um, and you're much more of a political theorist than me. I um, would be... The, the area of interest that I have it is psychoanalysis and talking about things that were weaponized. Um, it's interesting, there was, a, there was an Adam Curtis documentary. I find it actually quite difficult to watch because it sort of misunderstands Freud or it talks about the weaponization of Freud through through advertising and um, how, yeah, basically psychoanalysis is is at the, at, the, at the core of sort of the century of the self and that it's all about the individual. 
whereas actually psychoanalysis is about very you know talking about you know this question of what can we do that we have very little we're sort of very powerless in a way i mean it, to be quite pessimistic about it but psychoanalysis um helps the cure is not sort of any any level of success it's accepting ordinary unhappiness accepting that accumulation can't make you happy and talking about you know referring back to the film this idea that even these the winners lose you know we we sort of believe that there's some magical object some commodity in under capitalism that will make us feel better make us you know improve our lives and not to be sort of like super pessimistic about it and obviously one does still have to produce and pursue what one wants and pursue a life that's enjoyable but yeah psychoanalytic reading would be sort of capitalism relies on frenetic accumulation the frenetic belief that there are material objects that can make us feel happy when they can't but again okay like can everybody undergo the cure of psychoanalysis like no you know it's it's um it's very difficult it's very difficult yeah yeah it reminds me of de Tocqueville's kind of image of what was wrong with France in that mm -hmm. Uh, France had ripped up all of the things which used to bind people to communities uh, mm -hmm. and had produced this situation where the individual is kind of on an island with this gigantic state with nothing really intermediating in between. Yeah. Uh, uh, I always tr describe it to students as it's kind of like in Lord of the Rings when Frodo is looking at the, Sauron's tower and the eye stares at you and it's it's just terrifying. Uh, yeah. And if you imagine, you know, a skyscraper that is surrounded by other tall buildings, you know, some of, of different heights and you're a little bit away from the city and there are buildings near you that are shorter and they lead up to where the mm -hmm. skyscrapers are. It's not very frightening. But if there's one tower, a singular tower in the middle of an empty field. Yeah. That's a very intimidating thing. Mm -hmm. And as, as this, this system becomes more totalizing, people often feel that way and, and have to try to find a way to reckon with it or respond to it in some yeah. kind of way when they feel completely powerless to do anything about it or change it because that tower is just so remote and just so tall. Yeah, and the, the, the solution that liberalism has to this is to come up with all sorts of dummy intermediary institutions mm -hmm. that create the illusion of you being able to interact with the structure. And mm -hmm. one of the things I really fear going forward is that the, the left is going to turn into a movement for kind of devolution and localism yeah. and direct democracy and yeah. lots of small local institutions that have no power to affect the international eco economic system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm but which everyone will waste all of their time and attention on. Yeah. The, these time suck things. And, and that's where <laughs> I see it going. I see so mm -hmm. much of contemporary left-wing thought, you know, in part, you know, the framing of uh, what is emancipation from capitalism. Well, it's, it's a cooperative. It's a business that still exists yeah. in a market where yeah. everybody is the boss. Yeah. yeah. And so everybody <laughs> is keeping an eye on each other. Yeah. I mean, it's still really, it's still, basically follows the same logic yeah 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 that has become the really popular vision in, mm -hmm. now on the contemporary left of what socialism is and i can't think of anything less socialist than that a cooperative is a market a firm in a market 
where the relationships between exploited and exploiter, employer and employee, have been obscured such that they can't be seen. I can't yeah, think of something that would be more that? effective at perpetuating this than that. I mean, um, Zizek always has this uh, joke about the hippie parent, that actually the con- traditional conservative parent um, he uses this example of, uh, well, when you're a teenager and you have a conservative parent, they say, there's nothing you're going to do about it. You have to go and see Grandma Jane this afternoon and you're not going to enjoy it, but you have to go. Tough shit. And the hippie parent says, oh, Auntie Jane would be so happy if you could go and see her. You know, you really should enjoy, you know, so not only do you have to, you know, under under the conservative parent, you have to go and everybody admits you don't enjoy it. It's out in the open, but you just go. Whereas with the hippie parent, yeah, the, the power dynamic is so obscure that you take on the responsibility to not only do it but also be happy about doing it yeah you get responsibilized and you pick up a bunch of shame and guilt on top of having to do it exactly you can't and i find this i've talked about this with the british royal family a lot the sort of neoliberalization of our humanitarian princess and you know not only can you have a royal institution that is fundamentally obviously unfair and so you can kind of use it as a reminder that the accident of birth, the absurdity of existence and actually live better in community and, you know, appreciate people and actually think more structurally about the unfairnesses of our system. You have to like this person who is a princess because she's so kind and such a humanitarian. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, very clever, very clever. Um, but yeah, I guess, you know, going back to going back to the film, you know, there's an antagonism between... Um, you know, seeing the system for what it is, it being very depressing, escaping to your ivory tower, to your wood, or wrestling with the antagonisms and living into the contradiction and returning to community, addressing your public. And, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what that looks like, but, you know, continuing to chat about things and talk about things and contribute to the dialogue and stuff. Yeah, so often the right approach is some kind of mean between two mistakes. Uh, mm-hmm. Aristotle calls it a golden mean, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you can really see this with the Bernie movement. There's a chunk of people who could not even begin to entertain supporting that movement because they were too far removed. Mm-hmm. There's a chunk of people who got completely embedded in it and began convincing themselves that it was going to be able to do lots of things it probably couldn't do. And then there were people who supported it, but retained an awareness of its limitations. And the trick is, if you if you were in that group, if you were fortunate enough to be able to love Bernie, but also keep him at arm's length, uh, now you have to try to find a way to continue to have that relationship with politics mm-hmm. when there's going to be a real dry drag effect in one direction or the other either to rationalize okay the squad and aoc and all of that that socialism now we still have a left movement we're still going somewhere which i think is a mistake mm-hmm. or on the other side of it completely running away from politics and going off into the woods yeah I know it's, um, I mean, I am quite excited about having conversations like this. And I know there's, I mean, I'm a filmmaker and there's, I know there's a lot of people, obviously, you know, I'm not pretending that we can do anything, you know, 
particularly impactful, but, you know, I think there are ways of whatever work you do of, um, you know, thinking about the world in more structural ways, seeing ideology for what it is and sort of, you know, having a sort of approach in whatever realm you take. Um, but it, it is difficult. It is difficult because as, as you said earlier, you know, there's questions of can one afford to be, um, critical of liberalism um obviously some people are braver than others <laughs> you know or does one want to be deplatformed if one touches too close to the bone but yeah it's, it's difficult it is difficult but uh yeah it's interesting i mean obviously the academic world is is one that has traditionally been more separate obviously in recent years with the financialization of universities that's possibly changing do you i mean do you have a oh it's definitely changing it is definitely changing and the thing is that because academia used to be the place that was protected from this Mm -hmm. and it's now being marketized the reputation of the university is being traded upon so that the university system can support liberalism yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's gradually corroding the reputation of the university system, mm-hmm. the reputation of academia and science and uh, intellectuals in general. Yeah, uh, and all of that is contributing to the rise of various kinds of of um, movements that just hate anything intellectual. Yeah, I know, and it's uh, it's really sad. And I don't know if this is just an inevitability of it. it's just another realm that the market had to eventually spread to, but. Um, I mean, do you, do you feel Cambridge is quite, uh, it's interesting because I graduated in 2011, so it was different to how I imagine it might be now, but do you feel Cambridge is quite protected from, from this stuff? Cambridge is as protected as you can be, but mm-hmm. it's not enough. Yeah. This stuff is gradually getting us to, it's mm-hmm. gradually getting us to, we will be the last. Yeah. Everybody else will go first and then us. But this is this is gradually creeping its way through. A lot of the American uh, universities are already all the way there. Yeah. Uh, political theory is is basic is is dying in the United States. If you look for political theory jobs in the United States, they are uh, overwhelmingly looking for someone who just teaches identity politics as yeah. a kind of single thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we're 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 moving toward a world where we can't rely on academia to reproduce critical stuff. Everything that was critical is is being distorted and turned into something which can reinforce the system. Mm-hmm. I think there's been a, a feedback loop, unintentional, between critical theory and liberalism, mm-hmm. in which critical theory has made liberalism more adaptable because liberalism has learned from critical theory how to hide what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you know, and it's funny, this is something, um, yeah, it's it's kind of tragic to me. And I have to say, I've said this a couple of times and I don't, I feel kind of bad saying it, but it was after I left university and I got more into, I read a lot at university and I did have a really good education, but um, I think even what I was taught as an undergrad, when when it's oversimplified, it can be weaponized. And I actually, reading more of the original texts, it's not what it is. 
But I, yeah, I mean, I just think that's, yeah, it's liberalism's mode, but obviously the university provides a legitimation mechanism. Um, yeah, yeah, and there are, there are a lot of people who, you know, when, when you think about how do you get to a point where you as a person can question how, how terms are understood, question the system, you, know, mm-hmm. you have to go through a period of questioning and you have to go back to the original source. You know, why is it that we have all of this? Why, where does this structure come from? You have to go back to the people who argued for these kinds of structures and systems and follow mm-hmm. the thread for how we got here. You, know, you got to start with stuff like, like Plato and Hobbes and, and those guys uh, to then see where did it turn into what we have. And then you can understand the critiques in context. If yeah, instead you start with the critiques... It, yeah, it just all goes goes wrong. And especially because a lot of the university, uh, especially in the United States, it's very common to teach this stuff in the way that high school social studies is taught, where yeah, there are rights yeah. and wrongs. And these are the facts and these are mm-hmm. what the words mean. And here's how they're defined. Yeah. And the whole point of all of this is to question all of that. So you've mm-hmm. got a lot of young people who are professionals who are used to trying to impress teachers to get good grades and trying yeah. to parrot back at the teacher what the teacher believes to get good grades, who are echoing all of this critical theory in a way which will impress the professor. The professor mm-hmm. is is operating often from a radical liberal frame uh, and just kind of propagandizing this stuff without yeah. teaching it to you in a way where it facilitates becoming a fully critical thinking person. Uh, it's interesting in France, um, every student does philosophy at, hi- at high school until the age of 18. And so there's a different amount of preparation <laughs> before you might go to college. And maybe you wouldn't be introduced to this stuff until like master's level, just in the way that the French system is taught. So, um, yeah, it is um, the ladybird version. And it's, it's tragic because obviously then you get people thinking people reverting to people like Jordan Peterson you know, because it's like, well, cultural Marx, it, 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 it's like, well, what he is critiquing, you know, the, is not, he's, he, he claims it's the original texts that he's critiquing, but he's critiquing the bastardization of the, you know, of the original text. And it's kind of frustrating. And it, you see this sort of Camille Paglia, Noam Chomsky, obviously that, you know, there's, there's differences between them, but, you know, even the IDW and then the liberal mainstream and it's like there's a whole world out there of actual stuff yeah <laughs> that could be helpful yeah the bastardizations uh, and, and the sad thing is that increasingly because the universities are full of uh, academics who receive the bastardizations mm-hmm. and who read things in the bastardized way we are now reaching a point where this starts to filter up and you, you start to produce a system which can only produce further bastardizations of liberalism and libertarianism, where all of the thought from the past will be read in this presentist way and turned into further iterations of liberalism and libertarianism. It's becoming very difficult, I think, especially in the United States, for people to even see the existence of a genuine alternative to to liberalism. Mm-hmm. Everything that they call an, an alternative is instead a remix or a, or a response. Uh, and a, a lot of this is that the dichotomy that we see now in, in culture between, say, nationalism and liberalism, where there's this yeah. proposed antagonism between the two, neglects that historically nationalism and liberalism were born twins, emerged out of the same moment, and mm-hmm. mutually reinforced each other's development. 
And of course, in Germany, there was a national liberal movement, which which was avowedly both things at once. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Yeah. The 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 area that I guess I know a bit about. um, Yeah. The the aim of psychoanalysis is to present is is a profoundly universal. It's kind of dialectical in that it it presents the universal through the particular. So we are all bound by a differently formed, similar lack. <laughs> so, but then it's sort of turned into this sort of therapy, therapy by text, therapy, therapy, therapy. And it's like therapy to achieve, therapy to get you to be able to be a better subject of capitalism. That's not what psychoanalysis proper is supposed to help you divorce yourself from capitalist modes of subjectivity. <laughs> and now we've got this bastardized version which helps people do their job better feel more relaxed so that they can work more self-care you know, self self-care 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 yeah. and i guess you know all it all does come from you know the the discovery of the unconscious by freud and then just this this like weapon and you know he, freud was like very very hardcore he kicked a bunch of people out of you know of psychoanalysis and like rightfully so but it's it's difficult it's difficult and i think you know there's you know you were talking about the sort of confidence um, potentially of students who, who go through the American system, there is a, there is a confidence in this sort of contemporary mode of being. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I, I'm also reminded of the distinction Aristotle makes between amusement and leisure. Amusement being time that you spend preparing yourself to return to work and leisure mm-hmm. being time that you spend thinking about stuff, trying to become a better person. Yeah. And what we have done recently is we've, we've fetishized amusement as the purpose of life. The purpose yeah. of life is to get amusement. And mm-hmm. we have so many adults now who have kind of aesthetic identities based on what, whichever fandoms they participate in, which shows they follow, which video games they play, which music mm-hmm. they listen to. And a lot of that comes out of the hippie movement and its, its yeah. tendency to identify with different strands in, in art or culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a society which you know is committed to art, but only in the sense of, of being amused. And that the result of this is that if all we're trying to do is increase the amount of time we have for amusement, we are just trying to to be more efficient workers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's this, the Google sleep pods, the meditation break at lunchtime. It's not so that you get yeah, all of these these forms of you know these apps that help you to to be more quote I don't even know what mind I, I do not understand the term mindful but anyway I think it's one of these like loose liberal terms it's like mindfulness I don't understand it but anyway um all it's doing is to make you yeah a better worker yeah yeah I mean I guess I'm I, well, I'm guessing there is a meaning to the word mindful but like mindful in that sort of like mindfulness tm you know <laughs> It's a ripoff of of Buddhism, right? Buddhism is about trying to abstract out of the self and to um, see the interconnectedness of of the world structurally around you. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is not about trying to get in touch with the self Mm -hmm. or more self-aware. That's that's decidedly not the purpose. The point is to get out of the self. Mm -hmm. Sorry, yeah. Oh, yeah, just... just, uh, so much of the history of philosophy and the history of thought is about trying to see that the self is an illusion and that individuality is an illusion and that we are all connected to each other in all kinds of ways that are obvious and non-obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
so much of that now is is just different ways of reinforcing the same thing. Yeah, it's a sort of Orientalist, Westernized, capitalized upon McDonald's version. I mean, we are the, the most recent film that we just completed is actually a retelling in ancient Ireland of a Buddhist parable, and it's literally the most materialist Buddhist parable you could ever encounter, and it's about shared confrontation with loss. Um, yeah, and it's like this is this is yeah, as you said, it's not about. Um, connecting with yourself like this illusion of uh, we should probably wrap up this is maybe our like longest episode <laughs> this illusion of like um uh, this is a bastardization of, 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 of psychoanalysis that this so-called quote-unquote subconscious is um a corrective mechanism that is like your diamond almost this sort of inner voice that has your best interests at heart and is connected to this universal oneness and if you just listen to your quote unquote subconscious then you know you can manifest whatever reality um which is definitely not freud (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's quite amazing anyway yeah um any any closing thoughts well uh just that i i think one of the things that is difficult about the time in which we live is that we are constantly set upon by liberal ideology, constantly, all the time. And no one is able to consistently 100% of the time not do it. No Mm -hmm. one is able to all the time avoid lapsing into blaming and shaming people and thinking as an individual, and uh, especially when we're tired. And one of the things that liberalism uh, and capitalism are very good at doing is, is making us tired, making us not have the energy to think about stuff, keeping us so busy that whenever we get a free moment, we have to just zap ourselves out with with television or something like that. Uh, And so we we so rarely have the energy to remember that we're all part of a a big structure and that we are all stuck trying to cope with it in insufficient ways. Uh, And so if I were to finish it with anything, it's just that we all we all have to try to find ways to be more forgiving because Absolutely. we are all in this predicament together. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's really, you know, it's a structuralist approach. And, you know, I, I find myself, I slip into it all the time of being sort of, you know, as, as, a, as a person in, under liberalism, one does become moralistic and stuff. It's very, very difficult. And yeah, one shouldn't be necessarily ashamed of it because there are structures at play. And as you say, you know, working full time, it's, it's almost, as Peter always says, it's, he's always impressed that anybody gets out of bed in the morning. You know, being a human under capitalism is very difficult. And, um, but yeah, no, and Marx and others provided a way for us to help us see the chains and, yeah, um, think in a less blameful way. Yeah. Yeah. And the hardest part is to figure out, forgive ourselves when we do it, because we mm-hmm. all will. We'll all get tired we'll all slip up now and again. Absolutely right. Anyway, thank you so much, Benjamin. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. I was uh, really pleased uh, to be able to get you onto the podcast. And I was so sad that uh, the Wake Festival had to be cancelled, uh, but hopefully next year or something. It's, it's a really good event. It really is. Um, sort of this four days in Belfast. Uh, and it's sort of speakers, artists, sort of curated space, so really like live in community and sort of experiment with these kinds of ideas. So it's great. Anyway, uh, thank you so much. And until next time. 
Thanks for having me. It's been a joy. Thank you. Bye. Bye.